0: Good evening, Mosaic Church. If we've never met, my name is Brady. Uh, And the most important thing you can know about me is I'm an imperfect follower of Jesus. Uh, I got to be a part of this community for a long time, uh, a bit ago, and it was one of the greatest pleasures of my life, and so I'm always thankful when I get the opportunity to come back and share. Uh, How many... Is there anyone in here that, that ran relay races, like maybe in high school or junior high? Anyone? Okay. Now, so I don't know how much you know about Greek, but my name in Greek means slow, slow, and And my mom, she spoke that over me as a child, and it, it it came to fruition. I was slow and still am slow, so I was never a part of any relay races. I had a buddy in college who ran the four by four hundred for Baylor uh, and so everything I know about relay races is from him because uh, I, I I no one ever was like, "Hey, yeah, you should really be on our team." That was never a thing for me um but For for those of you who did run relay races, you can kind of like clue in the rest of us. What's the most important thing in a relay race? Ooh, it's that little, isn't it that little round thing that you hold? Because you can run the best race of your life. In fact, in a relay, oftentimes there's four runners running and you can have three of the fastest legs ever. But if that fourth person drops the baton, it doesn't matter, does it? It's over right? This thing that you carry is it. I don't know. uh, I remember I didn't have these, but my wife tells me there were these little uh, digital things that you had that were like, like little, little babies or like little, uh, yes. And you had to like feed them and you had to do all these like things and you had to like take care of it and guard it. I remember when I was growing up now, this was a while ago. This was back in the, uh, you know, I don't know what century, but uh, it was a long time ago. And there was, a, there was a class that we had to take where we had, I think it was home ec, and we had to take a, an egg and, and we, we painted a little face on it and then we had to care for it for a week and then we couldn't drop it or break it. We had to take it everywhere. We Some of you are looking at me like, what in the world? What century did you grow up in? I don't even remember. It's that long ago. Yeah. But the baton is like that thing. It is the most important thing in the race. It is so precious to those runners. And I was thinking, you know, as we were singing praise to Jesus, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter five, maybe it's 2 Corinthians chapter five. I don't remember. Uh, But Paul is writing and he says, what God is up to is God is reconciling the world to himself. Which just... Right then and there, that's just just pretty incredible. Because I think most people think God's mad at you. He's angry at you because you're just doing all the stuff he didn't want you to do. But the disposition of God towards the world is God is reconciling the world to himself. And then it goes on and Paul says, and we, you and I, followers of Jesus, we are the ones who have been entrusted the ministry of reconciliation. It's like the thing God is doing, reconciling the world to himself, he said, here, you carry that baton. And I tell you what, I can't imagine a more precious thing that we are carrying. We are carrying the kingdom of heaven. We are carrying the gospel. We are carrying God's reconciliation out to the world. If you've been around for any stretch of time, the last, I think, six weeks, we've been in a letter that Paul, who Lauren talked about, one of the earliest church planting missionaries, wrote to his child in the faith, Titus. And in the, we're at the very end of it. This is just the last uh, section in chapter three. And in this, Paul talks about the one most important thing that we all need to keep in mind if we're gonna carry that baton well. Because Paul says, if we don't get this thing right, we will drop the baton. Are you excited to know what it is? If you have a Bible and you want to turn to Titus chapter three, please go ahead and do that. It's uh, right after the Timothys one and two. Uh, and we're going to be chapter three. We're going to start in verse nine. Um, and I'm just going to, I'm going to set this guy right, right here. There you go, buddy. Hey day. Um, Titus chapter three, verse nine. Uh, and, and if you don't have a Bible, we're going to have some slides that have the scripture on them. Uh, so we, we show us this first slide. Survey says, check. It says this, it says, but now who remembers the sixth grade? What kind of, what kind of English is this? What, but is what kind of word in English? someone said it, they weren't really sure, they were nervous. Conjunction, was that You great job? Give yourself a round of applause, it was amazing. Conjunction, yes. And conjunctions, they conjoin, right? They join more than one thing, right? So like, but is a contrast word, meaning there was something that was yes and now it's no, or there was something that was no and now it's yes, right? That's just kind of the way that that works in English. So what does that mean? If we're studying a passage of scripture and we see this word, what does that mean? we got to go back. Right, see that blue arrow? we got to follow the blue arrow, right? A little blue arrow is like the white rabbit. So we've got to follow it back. Paul says, but, so we need to go back. So let's go back a few verses. Yes, Paul says this, the sentence before he says this, these things are excellent and profitable. These things. Well, that sounds interesting. That's intriguing. These things, a sentence before that, I want you to insist on these things so those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, what are these things? Who else feels like a detective? Isn't this fun? I feel like Sherlock Holmes every time I'm studying the Bible. It is fantastic. The Benedict Cumberbatch version, obviously. These things, what are these things? We've got to go back. So let's go back again. One more time. These things, these are the these things. He begins chapter three with these things, and it's seven different these things. And these are the things. One, be submissive, to the rulers and authorities, uh, be obedient, be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, this is hugely intentional what Paul is doing. Now, when you look at all of these things, some of our things we're supposed to do and some of the things we're n- supposed to not do, okay? When you look at these things, do you think there's like a common thread? a common theme, if you do these things, what might this lead towards in, let's say, a community of Jesus followers? Any guesses? Begins with a U, rhymes with unity. Anyone? Anyone? Unity? Yes! That was amazing. Yes, unity, right? If we are submissive to one another if we are obedient to one another, if we are ready for every good work, if we don't speak evil of anyone, if we avoid quarreling, if we are gentle, and if we show perfect courtesy to all, that's some serious unity that's going to lead to, don't you think? Don't you want to be a part of that community? I want to be a part of that community. Uh, the problem is, is if I joined the community, they'd kick me out because I don't know that I would fit well, right? This is pretty incredible. Paul is saying that these things that we need to do, that we need to insist on, that we need to keep in mind, these things that lead to good works are things that create unity within the body of believers. Now, he gives us seven. And I'm just going to give you a clue. That's going to be important. Let's move on. Let's go back to the but. But, right, now that we know what these things are, what's important, what we should do, now we've got a contrast, which I'm guessing he's going to say, don't do Okay, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Avoid foolish controversies. Now, I know this is difficult. This is not gonna apply very well to our day and age because nobody is controversial today, right? Right? There's there's nothing controversial to even talk about. Like, I don't even know what he's saying, right? We'll have to imagine something controversial and something that's maybe... Not that important that people care a little bit too much about. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there was these, these people back then and they lived a very different life than we did. Foolish controversies. Avoid genealogies. Now, now you hear that and if you've read through the Bible like you're trying to do, I'm going to read through the entire Bible in a year. You get to the genealogies and you avoid them, right? And you're like, oh, I'm listening to Paul's words. I'm doing what Paul said. No, this is not what he's talking about. What Paul is talking about is the speculation that was coming in those communities about genealogies. See, these teachers, what they were doing is they were taking the genealogies, particularly back in the early chapters of Genesis, and they were speculating and coming up with all of this new theology that didn't accord with the sound doctrine that was taught throughout the rest of the scriptures. And they were leading people astray. And Paul's like, yeah, avoid that. Don't avoid the genealogies because I tell you what, If you've ever studied the genealogies, there is such beauty in the genealogies. We'll talk about it another time. But that's what Paul's saying. Avoid those speculations that cause division among you in the genealogies. Avoid dissensions and quarrels about the law. Now, this is also a list of seven. And you're going to say, hold up, those are only four things we are supposed to avoid. True. But he gives three descriptors about this list. And you're thinking, that is a stretch. If it was today in the way that we write, yes, absolutely a stretch. But what we have to understand is the way that the people who wrote the scriptures thought. And in uh, their hearts and minds, numbers were hugely important. They utilized numbers in brilliance to make works of art. And one of the ways that they use numbers is they would take uh, familiar numbers. Like I'm guessing if you've read through the Bible or read parts of it, some numbers pop out in your mind. What are some numbers that you've heard in the Bible a lot? Anyone? Seven, two, three, four, all the numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, infinity. Uh, yeah, 40 is a big one. 12 is a big one, right? There's some numbers that you hear repeated a lot and there's a reason for that. Now, one of the reasons is because the writer might be wanting you to think back to other times when that number is utilized. So if you were to think back, what's the time in the Bible where seven was really important? Oh, the very first page, right? The very first page, God creates the world in how many days? It's a trick question. It's six days. You rest on the seven day. But I know what you're talking about. Yes, it's a seven-day creation account, right? And what God is doing in the uh, seven-day creation account is it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, yeah, see, it's creation's happening. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it talks about how the earth was in this disordered, anti-life state, And what God does in the next six days is he takes this anti-life disorder and he creates order out of it and creates this place that can sustain life and make life flourish. So that's what happens in creation. God creates this beautiful order and unity among creation to allow life to flourish. And now Paul gives us two lists of seven to talk about how we now, as his followers, do the same thing. But we do it amongst ourselves, right? That we together create unity amongst ourselves, which makes a place where life can flourish. Not just any life, but the life of Jesus. He goes on and explains it. He says this, He says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And you're thinking, whoa, yikes. That's kind of rough, Paul. Anyone read that and think, really kick someone out of the church? Like, I don't know, during a Sunday worship? They're like, when are we going to do this? And who are we going to do this to? Like, how bad do you have to be to get kicked out? That seems Kind of harsh. I don't know, maybe you're like, yeah, get rid of people, man. Let's, we, we got too many people over here, too many jokers. Let's get rid of them. I don't know. I don't know how your personality is. But for me, I think that's, that's a little harsh. But here's what Paul is doing. Two things, it's so important. The first thing is, is we have to understand how important the mission of the church is. We carry the message of God's reconciliation of the world we have the baton. God has given us the baton. Us, people like me, people named Slow, he's given us the baton and said, I want you now to carry this message that I am for the world, that Jesus didn't come to judge or condemn the world, but to reconcile the world to himself. I want you to carry this And he said, your unity, it's what's going to be the place, the, the bedrock for this place of life flourishing. And when someone is stirring up division in your midst, he is hindering the message of reconciliation. And it matters. But even in that, even if we get the fact that it matters so greatly that we need to protect it, Paul has lots of grace in here. Two measures of grace. One, he says, warn the person twice. So first of all, this is not someone who disagrees, right? We, we have loads of disagreements in this room right now. Like for instance, um, if you talk about the beverages that you drink, um, you know, if you go to, I don't know, McDonald's and you put it under the fountain, that, that type of drink, that thing that you drink, what do you call that? It's got bubbles in it. Who said Coke? Yes, you are correct. They're all Coke. I don't care what kind it is. Can I get you anything while I'm up? You want, anybody want a Coke? Yeah. Can I have a Dr. Pepper? Yeah, absolutely. That's a Coke, right? They're all Coke. But we disagree upon this, don't we? Right? Because we have lots of people that are wrong. It's fine. What do you clean your ears with? What do you clean your ears with? A Q-tip. No, it's a cotton swab. Q-tip is a name brand. What do you blow your nose with? It's, a t- it's a t- Oh, nice. You got it. I love it. But most of us call it Kleenex, and that's fine. In our language, we can call something by a name brand. Totally, we can call it a Q-tip, we can call it a Kleenex, we can call it a Coke. The thing is, I know those things are silly, but I actually kind of get a little passionate about them. I don't know why, but I do. Um, But like there's a room full of disagreement, and yet we can still be unified. Paul's not saying we need to be uniform, but we need to be unified. That there is a way for the church to be unified, even when we disagree upon things. How are we going to do that? But what he says here is if this person is stirring up division, meaning trying to intentionally divide the church, intentionally stir up dissension within the church, intentionally trying to put out the light of the gospel in the church, he says, you still need to warn him twice. And then, but, but but that still seems harsh. So he follows it up. He says, knowing that this person is warped and sinful, he is, what's that word? Self-condemned. See, what happens when someone divides themselves from you, they have divided themselves. Paul says when they continually divide themselves from you, after warning them twice, make it official. Let them know, yes, you have divided yourself from us by trying to stir up division and dissension and quarrels in our midst. So, Be divided. And if you read other letters, Paul's writing this to a guy who's been with him uh, and done ministry with him for a while. So he knows the full story. But in other letters, Paul will say things like, okay, yeah, at some point, you do let someone exit the church, but you do it in hopes that they'll return. In hopes that as they exit, as they leave your midst, that God will do a work in their heart that they will realize the folly of their ways and they'll come back. That that's the whole point. It's always about reconciliation. It's not about picking and choosing people that we don't like and kicking them out. It's about protecting the gospel. And even when you have to, after warning someone twice, say no more to protect the community of faith, it's always in hopes that they'll come back in. It's always in hopes that they'll be reconciled and that they'll be a part of the unified church. This is huge for Paul. How many, how many readers do we have in here? Anybody, re- readers? Yeah. Do you have like a favorite author that you like to read a lot? Who's your favorite author? Bob, Bob Goff. How many has he written? Two, three? Four. Four. Three. See, he's not my, obviously not my favorite author. But I do like, I, I read uh, his first one, uh, Love Does. That's a great book. Uh, who else has got a favorite author? I can't hear what you're saying, but it sounds like an amazing author. I love it. I've read all of his books or her books, whatever. William Lane Craig. Oh, yes. A little more brilliant. Yes, I love it. It's great. But what's going to happen when you have a favorite author? What you'll notice is there are similar themes that start to pop up in all their books, right? you'll notice that they kind of have certain passion points. They have certain things that really matter to them. And whatever story they're telling, it begins to pop out in their writings. Paul has something he's passionate about. And if you read every single one of Paul's letter, unity will either be the major theme of the letter or at least a minor theme in the letter. In all of his letters, unity is huge for Paul. You know why? Why? because unity was huge for Jesus. There was this night, that it's the night that Jesus gets betrayed, the night that he gets uh, arrested and crucified. He's with all of his closest followers and he begins to pray. And in his prayer, this is what he prays. He prays this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus is praying to the father and he says, I'm not praying for these only, so the disciples that were with him, but also for all of those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? Point to yourself. Everyone who has believed in Jesus through the word of the disciples, that's us. Jesus prayed for us. He says this, that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I are in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me I've also given to them that they may be one even as we are one I in them you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me Jesus said, I want all of my followers to be perfectly united as one, as Jesus and the Father are one. So that, why did he want that? So that the world will know that God the Father sent Jesus the Son. So if we are carrying the good news, if we are carrying the kingdom of heaven, if we are carrying the news that God came, put on flesh, died for our sins, rose to new life, if we are carrying this message, then what is the most important thing that we do? Unify. Jesus says it's our unity that's gonna let everyone else know that we follow Jesus and Jesus was sent by God. Like that's how people are going to know. Not our perfect articulation of doctrine. Not our impressive communication style. Not our amazing gifts in worship. Not our beautiful building that we have rented. It's our unity. Now, now can you imagine a world that's not unified? Can you imagine a world that disagrees upon important things and petty things? Can you imagine a world that, in fact, disagrees so boldly that they might stop being in a relationship with one another, that they might call people names, that they might, you know, cost people their job? Can, 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 can you imagine a world like that? It's tough to imagine, I know. But then think about, what if there was a place that despite disagreements, they were still in perfect unity? You might think, huh, how do they do that? I don't get that. Why would they do that? They, they disagree. How, how can they be unified? Jesus says, that's how they're going to know. Your unity, our unity, the unity of the church is how people, the world are gonna, is going to know about Jesus. This is why Paul is so passionate about it. And he goes on and he begins to give some greetings. Now, this is Paul doing a classic thing that everyone does in all their letters in his day and age. I don't know, I don't know how many of you like, had to learn how to write a letter growing up in school. I don't know if they still did that. I had to learn. And there's like parts of letters, right? There's the greeting, dear so-and-so. Um, uh, hey, sup, dude. I don't, I don't know, Like, but, but the, the greeting. You've got the greeting, you've got the body of the letter, and then you've got the thing at the end, right? And the thing at the end, in that day and age, where it's all these greetings, you would greet all of the people that you had, you know, things in, uh, you, know, you know, friends that you had in common. This was, this was just something that everyone did. But Paul, I love it. He takes this thing that everyone does and he says, I'm gonna use this and continue to preach the gospel in it. You'll notice in this list, there's a guy named Apollos. Now, I don't know how much you know about Apollos, but we see Apollos pop up in the book of Acts as he's discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. And then we see Apollos pop up in the letter of 1 Corinthians. And what has happened in the area of Corinth, in the city of Corinth, in the church there, there was a lot of division happening and it was happening over Apollos because Apollos was a very gifted teacher. He was incredibly talented. And so when he went over to Corinth and began preaching the gospel, the church of Corinth, there was a giant segment of the church that was like, oh, this dude is amazing. I'm all about Apollos. And then some other people were like, no, Paul planted this church. I'm about Paul. And some other people, no, I'm about Peter. He was actually with Jesus. Jesus called him the rock. I'm about Peter. And some people were like, no, I'm just about Jesus. And there was this great division. And Paul had to correct this division that was happening over Peter and Apollos and Paul. And what he does here is he's saying, hey, all of these people, man, take care of them. Bless them. Send them well on their way. Me and Apollos, we're unified, right? No matter how you want to divide, we are unified. The spirit can unify us. And Paul does this in a number of other places. Uh, I wrote down a few names. Barnabas is a great one. Barnabas, uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, they went on the very first missionary journey ever. And on this missionary journey, they planted a lot of churches and they took a guy with them named John Mark and halfway through their missionary journey, John Mark couldn't hack it. He left and went home. We don't know why. Maybe he was homesick. Maybe he got sick. Maybe he was afraid. I don't know, but he left. Time passes. Time passes. Paul and Barnabas want to go on a reunion tour, right? They want to go on a second missionary journey. And and, and Barnabas says, hey, we got to take John Mark with us. And Paul's like, what? Are you kidding me? And Barnabas like, no, of course, we're going to take John Mark, right? Get the band back together again, all three of us again, right? Three Musketeers. And Paul says, dude, left us. Are you kidding me? We're not taking John Mark. And Barnabas says, yeah, we are taking John Mark. Paul's like, no, we're not taking John Mark. And Barnabas says, what about Grace. Paul, remember grace? What about the grace that I gave you when you came to Jerusalem and all the apostles were rejecting you and I stood up for you? Paul's like, I don't care. We're not taking John Mark. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they separated and they stopped doing ministry together. But in the letter of Corinth, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about Barnabas and says, he's one of the apostles. And then in his last letter that he writes, the letter of 2 Timothy Just before he dies, at the very end of the letter, he says, Hey, Timothy, bring John Mark to me because he is useful to me for service. I just love the way that the Spirit of God continues to unify his leaders, even in the midst of sharp disagreements. I think this is one of the reasons why unity was so important to Paul. He saw it in Jesus, and he saw the devastating effects of disunity in the church as he traveled from church to church, and even in his own life. And so in the greetings, in his farewell greetings, he even talks about the unity of the gospel. Now, I don't know how much you know about church history, We're not a very unified group of people. Uh, Will you show us this next slide? Here are just some of the many schisms that have happened in the church. And a schism is where one unified body splits into two. Look at all these. This is not even all of them. Like I ran out of room. There's a whole bunch more that happened. Here's some, some of the more important ones. The Great Schism of 15, uh, 1054. Uh, you've got the, the, these reformations that happen. Uh, we're in a Protestant church. So we're a part of the reformation, the reforming of the Catholic church. Uh, they call us Protestants because we protested I don't know the exact number of how many denominations, Protestant denominations, there are, but people will say that there are over thirty thousand different Protestant denominations. There are more than forty-seven thousand different non-denominational churches. If there's anyone's world that can disagree upon something, Protestants can disagree upon something. And yet Jesus said, "Father, I pray that they'd be one." even as you and I are one. And this is the way the world's gonna know that you sent me. I think this breaks God's heart. I think this breaks God's heart. But this is difficult, right? So how do we do this? Because there are a lot of things that are important, that matter. So what do we do when we disagree about things that matter? Here's one thing that Mosaic Church does. Will you show us this next slide? What we've done, and many other churches do this, is we have categories of belief. Uh, and you look at these different concentric circles. Out on the far reaches, we have what we would call open-handed beliefs. These are beliefs that are not of eternal significance. They don't affect the gospel. They're not a matter of salvation, but they're things that people care about. Things like, who here really loves to sing old hymns? Right? Who here would prefer to sing more modern-day songs? Yeah, open-handed belief, right? You can believe, no, hymns, man, they have such rich theology, we have to sing hymns. And then someone else could say, no, no, I love these, these courses. They're so easy to sing and we can do all these incredible harmonies. I love it. We need to sing those. And it's like, yeah, totally. You can think that, you can believe that. Great, that's an open-handed belief. We don't, we, we don't need to divide over that. And then in this next circle, what we'd have is di- distinctive beliefs, And a distinctive belief would be a belief that you can find in Scripture, right? You can find evidence in Scripture uh, for this. The Scripture teaches it, and it's important. Like, it has to do with the life of the church. Something like baptism, right? There are people that that say, you only baptize people who have professed faith in Jesus. And other people that will say, you can baptize infants, right? That would be a distinctive belief because both beliefs can be found in Scripture, right? Both of those, you can, you can study the Scriptures and you can find evidence for each of those in the Scriptures. And you're going to have to come to some conclusion. And these are the things that separate out different like church denominations. So at Mosaic Church, we have a, a number of distinctive beliefs, And then the next circle is what we call core beliefs. And core beliefs are what the church, the unified church, all of the churches have agreed upon for the last 2,000 years. And there's only a few of those things. Things like the Trinity. That God is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. The Trinity. The church church is unified in one voice, always agreed upon this. And what this does is this separates out different religions. So if you don't, you don't believe in the Trinity, that separates you out from Christianity. That's a different religion. So Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Mormons, uh, Muslims, right? There are a lot of things that those people that I just named have in common, but they'll disagree upon the core beliefs that the church has uniformly agreed upon. But then Paul is another category, and this is the key, and I'll show you what it does in Titus, and it's beautiful. But it's what I call First importance. He sets it up in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. He says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul says, if I have all knowledge and I understand all mysteries, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Paul's saying, if I have all of the right answers, but I don't have love, I am nothing. So if I have all the right answers on the open-handed things and all the right answers on the distinctives and all the right answers on the core beliefs, but I don't have love. So what do we do, Paul? Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, now I'd remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance. This is huge. Paul says, I delivered to you a message that is the most important thing. It's the one thing that stands above all the other things. And this is the one thing. He says, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ, Jesus, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That this is a thing that Paul says is the most important thing that all Christians have to unify around, that Jesus, the God of the universe, put on flesh— lived a life, died for our sins, was buried, and then bodily rose from the grave. This is what is of first importance. And the way that Paul demonstrates this in the letter of Titus is beautiful. Remember those two lists of seven things, the seven things that lead to unity and then the seven things that lead to Disunity. There's something right in the middle of those things, and it's a passage of scripture all about who we were, what God did, and who we are now in Christ. And, and, and the, the graphics team made a slide for this, it's so beautiful. But you've got these seven things that lead us to unity. And when you begin to parse them out, you realize, I can't do this on my own strength. And it leads you to the next verses. And then you've got this list over here of all of these things we're supposed to avoid, controversies, uh, foolish speculation about genealogies, uh, dissensions, and you begin to realize, I can't do this. This is beyond my capability. I can't do this in my own strength. And you've got to run back to the cross. It is this beautiful picture with the cross in the middle that what we need more than anything is Jesus Because no matter who you are and what you disagree on with me, there's only one category of people in the world and it's people that God died for. People who need the grace of God. And I'm in that category and you're in that category. And every human is in the category of someone who needs the grace of God. And we can find commonality in that, that at least at one time, Paul says, we were all once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, our quest for unity leads us to the cross, and our quest to avoid disunity leads us to the cross. It leads us back to what is of first importance, And here's how this has worked out in my life. I've got a younger brother who's three years younger than me and and we grew up and we fought, especially uh, my junior of high school. My junior of high school, I don't know what happened to that boy, but he was crazy. Um, We would would fight uh, almost every day over very important things like the television remote control, and every time it would end in my brother running to the kitchen, grabbing the butcher knife and chasing me with it, me running to the bathroom because it was the only room that had a door that locked from the inside and just hanging out in the bathroom for hours until my brother calmed down. My junior year of high school, I spent hours upon hours in the bathroom, probably weeks if you added it up because I didn't know what he was gonna do. Like he would get this look in his eye and it was terrifying. And he'd start running after me and swinging that thing at me. And I, I didn't know what I was gonna do. So I just always retreat to the bathroom. And this, this, this beautiful thing happened. After my junior year, I left. And I didn't fear for my life anymore. It was great. Yeah, it was great. And then this even more beautiful thing happened. When he went to college, our friendship began to grow. And over the next couple of years, we became best friends. He's, he's one of my best friends in all the world. And he's, he's so brilliant and wise. And he's become way older than me. Uh, he's, he's got five kids. He acts like a grandpa. I still remember the day he turned 25 and he got a car and he got it in, in uh, the color champagne, like beige, the color uh, grandpas buy cars. in. like, I was like, what, what, how old are you? But he's, he's incredible. Like, he's amazing. And then about 10 years ago, um, he converted to Catholicism. And that began to drive a wedge in our friendship because there were some very important things that we disagreed upon. And they weren't things that we could like come to an agreement upon. Like we both disagree firmly on some things. But I love what he did and the way that he led. And what I've seen happen over the last few years is that we have agreed that no matter what we disagree upon, we can kneel at the cross together. That no matter what we think about the Pope or Mary or the authority of the church and the authority of the scriptures, we can bow at the feet of Jesus and unify at the cross. At the, what is of first importance. And I think about that and I think about what Paul is saying and it gives me hope for the church because there are really important things that we can disagree upon. And yet there's always the cross that I need God's grace and you need God's grace. That I was once foolish and you were once foolish. That I was once disobedient and you were once disobedient. And even at times I still struggle as you do. You know, we have one of the most incredible opportunities in the next 15 months. In the next 15 months, we will be in an election year. And I don't know if you guys remember four years ago, but it was a train wreck as far as the church was concerned because all the division that was happening outside the doors of the church was happening inside the doors of the church. And I don't know if you remember, but we as churches were dividing over masks. We were dividing over vaccines. We were dividing over Uh, whether racism was a thing or not, how are we dividing over that? We were dividing over how to fix poverty. We're dividing over everything. And like, we were so divided, we wouldn't come together. Just exactly like the rest of the world. And I think the way that we handled it four years ago would break Jesus's heart. But do you know what? What if, what if this year, what if this year we said, you know what, whatever you believe about those important things, if we disagree, we can still bow at the feet of Jesus? You know, whatever you think about welfare and social security, whatever you think about big government and small government, we can still unite kneeling at the feet of Jesus. And you, like me, may have some studied convictions about marriage, about gender about abortion, and we can have conversations, really good conversations, passionate conversations. We can look at the scriptures and we can say why this is beautiful and life-giving and why this is harmful. We can talk about this, but if at the end of the day, you disagree with me, I'll still bow at the feet of Jesus with you because unity mattered to Jesus so much that that's what he would pray for. And unity mattered to Paul so much that he would write every letter about unity. And maybe one day God will change my mind and my heart about the things that we disagree with. Because here's the deal. I only know in part. I don't know everything. And there are things that I'm wrong about. I just don't know what, what they are. Otherwise, I'd change my opinion. And there's things that you're wrong about. You just don't know yet. And one day we'll know fully and we'll see all the things that I was wrong about, all the things that you were wrong about. But I tell you what, as we bow at the feet of Jesus and allow God to do the work that he needs to do in our heart and our minds, we will display something radical to the world that Jesus is the God of the universe, that he is king and he came to save you because he loves you not because he's mad at you, not because he's angry with you, not because he wants to punish you, because he wants to invite you into his family so much that he gave his own life for you. That's what our unity in spite of our different opinions does. I don't know that we as a world have seen what a unified church can do, but I'd love to see it. Could you imagine if that would be the reputation of Mosaic Church? that we are unified no matter what because we realize we need Jesus as much as anyone else does. So here's what I wanna do. I don't know if you've ever been in a passion disagreement. But if you've had, you've you've probably felt like what people call their blood boil, right? Your face has probably gotten flushed. You felt heated, like your emotions got so intense. You didn't know what to do. You started saying things that you you regretted later. Here's something that you can do. When you're in that moment, you can do the most important thing in all of life. You can take in oxygen. Because if you don't, you're gonna die. I tell you what, breathing is so important. And here's just just a little technique that can help you pause because what we need are healthy cycles of rest and joy. And so to rest is to pause. And you can do, whenever you realize I'm in it, I'm too much, I need to pause, just begin to take a long, slow, deep breath in through your nose and then out through your mouth. And as you do that, you begin to feel a change. And we also, we have this nerve uh, called our, our vagal nerve. And it's just under our collarbones right here. And here's something you can do. As you breathe in through your nose, you can tap on them. And then as you breathe out through your mouth, you can rub little circles. And this is just basic biology. And what that does is it causes a brain reset. And it helps you get out of that state where you cannot think straight and you cannot allow the spirit of God into that moment. It gives you a cycle of rest that you need. And then joy. And joy comes through meditating on the beautiful truths of God's word. And so this is what I want us to do. I want us to meditate together on this passage that Paul points to. And so just just continue to sit just comfortably in your chair. Uh, You can open your eyes, you can close your eyes, however you want, but just do that magical thing called breathing. Just continue to take long, slow, deep breaths in through your nose and then out through your mouth. And I'm just going to slowly read this passage over us. But before we do this, I'm just going to ask that God would do the thing that he does. God, as we meditate on your scriptures, we ask that you would be present in a powerful way, that you would, by the power of your spirit, lead us into truth, that you would change us as we focus on the cross together. Let's just breathe in and out. And I'm gonna read this over us as we meditate. Paul says this, For we ourselves were once foolish. We ourselves, I was once foolish. We ourselves were disobedient. I was disobedient. We were led astray. I was led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy. We were hated by others and we were hating one another. We were foolish, disobedient led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we were. But, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He Saved us. Me. Even me. When God's goodness and His loving kindness appeared in Jesus, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus, the King, our Savior. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because we were smarter than anyone else. Not because we were more beautiful or more popular than anyone else, not because we were more wealthy than anyone else, but just according to his own mercy. He did it by washing us and renewing us by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus, the King, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life that we might become heirs that we might be the ones receiving his inheritance according to the hope of eternal life oh father thank you so so much for this incredible beautiful truth God, thank you for saving us out of your mercy for giving us your grace. But I pray that whoever we might disagree with, particularly those people who are followers of you, that we'd be willing to run back to the cross and kneel at the cross together worshiping your holy name until you change us. But I pray that unity would matter so much to us that we'd be willing to put a pin in important things so that we can kneel at the most important thing, at the feet of Jesus. God, we can't do this on our own. This is beyond our capacity We don't have the strength or the courage, so we ask that you would do what we can't do. God, we're so prone to argue and disagree. Unify us by your power so that the world can see your beauty, your grace, your kindness, your love, and be invited into your family. Lord, make us one as you, Father, Son, and Spirit, are in the name of Jesus.